Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, I have a question for you. All right. If you are, let's say you have, you know, a day to kill, a night to kill. You have a busy city life, you know, the hustle and bustle is getting to you. You just want some something out in the country, something nice. You hit up this bed and breakfast. Do you choose nighttime, America, or irrigation as your theme for your room? <laughs> I think I'm nighttime. Nighttime, yes. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, but I would want a good serving of beets while I was there. Sure, right. And you know, I guess America is too patriotic, and irrigation is just a pipe dream. <laughs> is that the case? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> My very thoughts. Yes, uh, but I would also want to watch a little Battlestar Galactica while mm, I was there. Sure. <laughs> And uh, maybe go bear hunting? Hmm. This sounds like somebody's wet dream. <laughs> Someone awesome. Do we get yet strange? <laughs> Do we get wet dream? <laughs> yes. Or... Welcome to this episode where we are taking on the Goliath of a show called The Office. We're doing the American version because it was longer. And I think in the final analysis, I would say a little bit better. Yeah, more than a little bit better. It because it went on for so long, it was able to bloom in and a way. I, and I think people are are well. I guess we live in North America, so we can't really speculate. But I think people are more attached to the characters in the office, the American office, than they are to the characters in the British office. For sure, I think the first season, for sure, and the first two seasons of the American office very closely mirror the British office. I don't think it's really until season three that you start to notice the American office kind of take on a life of its own and become its own entity. And prior to that, I found, re-watching some of these episodes for this podcast in the first two seasons, I found all the characters really much more wooden and one-dimensional than they are, and kind of in the background. Other than, you know, Michael, Dwight, Jim, and Pam... In the first two seasons, all the auxiliary characters are not even close to what they become in later episodes and later seasons. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, you come to love all of the characters, whereas I agree in the first two seasons, you don't really care about anyone else. In fact, some of them change actors or actresses and you don't even really notice. Oh, really? Who changed? Mindy uh, in the first couple of episodes is not her. Oh, really? Yeah. Who is it? Uh some unknown actress i should should probably have looked that up but, uh, yeah i hope well that's i mean i guess i didn't even notice <laughs> <laughs> exactly but, uh, but, i mean but yeah she's clearly not the focus of the uh no no of not the at episode. that point yeah but yeah so like how this show i think is in so my three favorite all-time 
comedic shows are South Park, Arrested Development, and The Office. And so I, I think South Park just edges out the other two because of it was like a first love <laughs> right, of comedy right. and it's been on for so long and there's so many. But The Office and Arrested Development have so, I just quote them endlessly. And I, I think the thing that might, as I get older, I think The Office might start to surpass Arrested Development for two reasons. One is that there's really only, in my opinion, three good seasons of Arrested Development. The first three, they captured lightning in a bottle. Season four, season five just aren't quite the same caliber. And the second reason is that The Office has, I think, a lot more warmth and a humanity to it. Arrested Development is fucking brilliant. The jokes, I read it once, a show that is just a huge Rube Goldberg machine. (laughs) (laughs) Unnecessary. Everything kind of influences everything else. It all comes back to some original thing. It's incredibly intelligent. I'd say the intelligence of the writing of Arrested Development probably goes beyond. The the performances, too. Like the physical comedy that the, you know, especially Tobias. Like the way that all the actors and actresses in Arrested Development really come to be their characters is incredible but the office having gone longer and having more time to develop the characters i think i love the characters in the office i don't love yeah uh, like, I, 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 I can tell you right now there's no character in arrested development that i have positive <laughs> emotions for like like yeah a g- genuine attachment whereas... well like i love tobias i would never want to be his friend no yeah and like <laughs> i would want to be I jim's love friend the story of and arrested Darryl. development but like I agree. I want to be Jim's friend. I would want to. I feel genuine sorrow for for certain characters in the office. Like I feel embarrassment for Michael over and over again. And you and then you come to love Michael. And then that like the very last scene where he's saying bye to Jim and like he's not coming in the next day because yeah. he he can't handle it. Mm-hmm. I mean that's emotionally traumatizing. So. Totally. And the thing is that's well, I do like I love Kevin. I don't know if I'd want to be Kevin's friend. I'd probably be friends with Oscar, you know? I'd probably be friends with Phyllis. I'd definitely be friends with with Phyllis. Would you be friends with Toby? Well, here's the thing. Toby gets the most shit, and yet I just never feel bad for him. (laughs) How? How do I never feel bad for Toby? Is it because he's just... You know what? Here it is. And I have to lay it all out in the open. He's too boring. (laughs) Like, his life is just that awful. (laughs) Like, I don't... Obviously... The cruelty that Michael bestows on Toby is unnecessary and unwarranted, and we'll talk about that. But the thing about Toby is that, and I mean, I don't have anything particularly against Toby, but what I think, and probably this is the genius of the writing of The Office, and I think the guy who plays Toby is one of the producers or writers. I don't know. He's in I think he's like Paul head, Lieberstein, kind of I think guy. his name is. Like, well, we didn't look show, that up, basically. so hopefully that's the right. <laughs> no, no, no. It's his show. Yeah. So what they capture with Toby, I think, is the cardinal social sin is to be boring. There's no greater infraction in social life than to be not interesting. And unfortunately for Toby... He is uninteresting. He's uninteresting. He fails... Every in time fact, I don't to even, capture attention. I, he is one of those people who like kind of slides over your consciousness. <laughs> like you don't even, I don't even really remember 
anything about his personal life except I think he got divorced and yeah he got divorced he has a kid I mean yeah. he's got he's he's loves Pam yes <laughs> it's unrequited yeah. love for yeah, it on he his has part a big crush on Pam I guess they make Toby into so many good jokes in the later seasons because he even like the moments he becomes alive he becomes part of his own running joke where there's one episode where he kicks himself out of the meeting because he laughs at oh no that was I think that was the injury anyway poor Toby but I mean like maybe and it's too bad because maybe it's just his like temperament and his style of speaking and the thing but the things he seems to be interested in and i use that term loosely are not interesting yes <laughs> to yes <people>. exactly exactly <laughs> so poor guy but just a quick rundown the office it was on the air from 2005 to 2013 it was pretty popular when it was on the air but i think it has really gained a notoriety once it went on to netflix and people could just binge watch it and get all of it all at once and it's still one of the few shows i mean it's been off the air now for six years and yet it's still current oh in the culture still watching yeah. It. yeah i mean um they're the most cliche advertisement i guess now on dating apps especially for women is they're just looking for the gym to their pam mm-hmm. which is something we can see get that into a lot on uh... a lot more <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i remember watching i i also want to give a big shout out to my very good friend danica she is the first person who ever recommended the office to me way back in i think it was 2006 so I think there had been one one season of The Office, and then maybe it was in the second season. And she had said to me all the way back then, hey, Luke, this is a show you will love. You should watch this. And it was true. And then I remember watching it on DVDs in university when it was like season four was on TV. Or like season five was on, and we had the DVDs for like season three and four. And all the way through to the end. And... This episode is dedicated to Danica because not only did she introduce me to this show, but she actually has been, in the four years since the conception of this podcast happened, she's been the person kind of always giving me the kick in the pants, asking me how the progress of Really True Fiction is going, wanting to make sure it happens. And so I think that this is just a perfect time to like say a big thank you to her and all of the way that she has influenced my love of this show and introducing me to it i mean i guess i would have got to it eventually but that still doesn't change the fact that it was her she she introduced you yeah and how um this podcast itself owes no small debt to her in keeping my she kept feeding my flames to keep this going so thank you danica (laughs) yes thank you danica even though i've never met you (laughs) (laughs) and so one of the things that became so clear to me I mean, I've seen The Office probably four times through. Every episode, probably about four times through. It's been a while since I watched it all the way through. So between you and I, I think we watched about 25 or 26 different episodes to kind of prepare for this podcast to bring out the things that are worth talking about in this show for a podcast like this. And so just before we dive into the meat, I mean, what... What has been your relationship with this show throughout the years? Okay. And how do you feel now about it, so this watching is it again? Interesting, because um, I was not uh, like you in the sense that I didn't watch it while it was on the air, except for very rarely at university, because it was such a big deal that there were like office watch parties every time it aired. And so like everyone would get together in the dorm, you know, main room and watch an episode of The Office. But 
for some reason, uh, just never watched it. Uh, it wasn't until uh, it came onto Netflix, like you said, which is actually something I wanted to talk about, is it coming onto Netflix, I think it shows the quality of the show that it became even bigger than it had ever been before once it was available to everyone who had Netflix. And it's actually the flagship, this is funny, the flagship show of Netflix. It is the most watched show on Netflix. Even though it's not a Netflix original. Exactly. I think it, I think it aired on NBC. Yeah. So my relationship with uh, The Office actually started when my now ex-girlfriend started watching it all the time and watched it incessantly for probably watched it three or four times now I would imagine uh and so it was always on and I just it's such a comforting show in a lot of ways it and I I think a lot of people use it for comfort because it reminds us of what's important in life that isn't uh, designated as important by wider culture or whatever it's the little details of life it's the fun moments of every day it's the relationships you have that you never really talk about with the people at work or it's the the inside jokes that you can't really go home and tell maybe your partner about or or your um or your friends around drinks because they wouldn't get the context of the many hours of the day that you spent with these other people and I think it draws out and makes sacred I would almost argue the regular lives of regular people and I think it does it in a way that nobody else has before or since and I mean Scranton Pennsylvania is a location a real location but it's it's a uh, a place in all of our minds now as a, <laughs> as a collective culture yeah. Like, I don't know very many people who haven't watched The Office. Do you? Yeah. No, not really. A couple things that came to mind when you were talking about that. One, yeah, I think Scranton, Pennsylvania, it's a cultural place now in our hearts. And yet most of the show, if not all, was filmed in California. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, exactly. I think of that set as, oh, that must be in Pennsylvania, but, but it's, no, it's, right. like, it's pretty sure. And then the intro scenes that are in Scranton, apparently John Krasinski himself filmed. <laughs> so that was really cool. The genius of the show, potentially, one of one of the genius aspects of the show is how they, the showrunners, managed to craft the everyday minutia of life, make it wonderful, and a tip of the hat to that, and to be normal the normal everyday things with so many people who are not normal yes yes i mean <laughs> there, there these... are arguably there are like two characters in the show who are normal maybe yeah, three yeah i mean but for also, lack of a better term so i think that's like you said part of the genius of the show because we none of us are normal normalcy <laughs> doesn't actually exist yes we all are super quirky and weird and have like things that excite <laughs> us like bears bees and battlestar galactica that maybe everyone's like you're kind of weird and yet Dwight is so beloved. Like I would argue, maybe the most beloved of the characters. I mean, it's, there's a there's the Jim and Pam, but he he's up there, right? Yeah. Like like Dwight becomes super beloved by people. And like probably one of the most famous quotes is that Bears beats Battlestar Galactica quote. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's the quirkiness that we love, and yeah. it's. I've heard this said once, and it really struck me, is you know you have an intimate relationship, not necessarily a romantic intimate relationship, but an intimate relationship with someone when you know things about them that are not initially apparent, right? (laughs) And we know, we feel like we have an intimate relationship with these characters because we know so many of their weird little quirks. Mm -hmm. 
like we know Angela's basically a cat lady, right? Yeah. And we know that she has like a very odd relationship with her both her faith and her sexuality, right? We but but these are not things you would know if you know you're just her friend on the street or Yeah, whatever. I mean and that that in itself, the little esoteric things about a person that we get access to of the audience of the show is again, I think another aspect of the genius of it where the use of a candid camera in the way that the show is filmed how there's because the for the one person out there who doesn't know the way that this show is filmed is that the camera work is actually part of the story because there's a documentary crew following the office for you know i guess like eight full seasons and then they start becoming part of the show in season nine and it gets a little bit meta in season nine so all of the characters know the camera's there. And so obviously there's like the one-on-one interviews they do all the time that add to the humor. And I mean, and characters do great takes at the camera. Like, cause obviously in other shows, you're not supposed to just look at the camera. Right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. show one-on-one. <laughs> One of the things that was opened up for the, the actors and actresses in this show is that the camera is actually something to interact with. And so much great comedy comes from that especially jim's takes i think jim's takes to the camera are fucking genius yeah. like it's amazing the way he looks at the camera but the also the way that they use the michael's, candid michael's too though yeah. i would say michael's, michael's is more awkward there. well yeah but i mean the genius of this show is okay awkwardness. here's a good contrast between jim and michael jim is actually connecting with the audience with his looks at the camera and michael just thinks he is <laughs> Michael yeah. th- Michael yeah. thinks he and the and the audience are on the same team and Jim knows he and the audience are on the same team. <laughs> but you know, we'll talk about that more but Michael is unbelievably deluded. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh but like how the that use of candid camera. Like I'm thinking of yeah, the scenes where Angela and Dwight sneak off in the warehouse to have sex. We get that on candid camera. I mean, there's just so many when Jim proposes to Pam, candid camera, you know, and like that uh, through the blinds, a lot of scenes with Michael on the phone through the blinds where they can hear what he's saying. Like (laughs) the candid aspect of that does reveal so many things that we wouldn't otherwise know about a person, but we, we know that these things happen to people. It's like the great majority of things that go unspoken are demonstrated in this show. And I think that that is a, a work of art an achievement of a work of art that is unparalleled. I can't think of any other work of art that has done, that has revealed the idiosyncrasies of the minutia of human life and relationships better. Like a show this famous that delves into the things that are that I think, detailed. I think and- that's why people love it is because it is probably the most authentically loving of the like you said of the minutiae it's the most authentically loving of basic human life of any show you're ever gonna watch Mm -hmm. so to dive into the meat and there is so much meat in this show i think most obviously we have to start with michael while watching the episodes to prepare for this podcast, I was blown away by how many notes on Michael I took. It was like every second note was on Michael. Well, <laughs> he, he just, especially he the star of the show. Yeah, well, and I mean, but, but interestingly, on this point, when he left the show, it didn't stop being good. No, well, that's which is the beauty of this show. In the interim, the other lead characters were really, and and the auxiliary ones were so 
well developed that they were able to stand like that was it's another beauty of the show i mean i don't like seasons eight and nine i don't think are quite as good without michael no but, i agree but, but they're but still they're really still very enjoyable to oh, watch. oh definitely right? yeah. yeah but because of <laughs> the amount like michael is in some ways a fairly polarizing person <laughs> yes you can't help but have a, a certain like intense ambivalence about him where especially in the first two seasons but all the way through like he does so many shitty things and he is so shitty so many so much of the time but he also does so many nice things and good-hearted things that i think the uncertainty we're supposed to feel about michael is also a genius of the show and so what i actually have done is to make it a little bit more clear i've separated bad michael and good michael (laughs) well i mean it goes back to the idea of we all have our darker shadow self and our and our and and our personalities draw different vices out and i think what i love about michael is we are actually given a character sketch of what a real human could look like right well <laughs> how many times do you hear people talking about this show and say well well who at our work is michael and like just yesterday i was talking to my brother and one of our best friends that we grew up with and they're like who's Michael at our work, and it was immediately this guy they named. It's him for sure. Okay, I would say probably what would be honest is that there are people at our work sites who are phantoms of Michael or 10% of Michael. Because anyone actually like. So, one of the jokes I have in my to myself about the next time I watch The Office all the way through is that I want to actually take notes or take make a note of every time Michael would have been fired. And right, every right. time Michael would have been arrested. <laughs> now, like, because it's yes, a lot. But I mean, this show also... <laughs> so there's no one actually like Michael. Well, this show actually developed before a lot of the things that would get you fired or arrested that he does were as big of a... Uh, I don't know. I mean, he does a lot. Like, he... I mean, he hits Meredith with his car. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> I don't true. know if that would get you arrested, but it might, like, well, I don't know. Like, there probably be, well, there was going to be a lawsuit, right? And yeah. He's very <laughs> trying to get out of that, wheel his way out. I mean, even back in, you know, the mid-2000s, there was enough social awareness to know that there's just some things you should never say and do at work. Yeah, <laughs> you, can't, he, you can't be hitting He just gets cars. away with. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> okay, okay. But anyway, we're going to start with Bad Michael, because <laughs> it's a little bit of a longer list. Uh, so the first episode where we're that I took notes on for Michael is the hot girl episode, which is the last episode of season one. It's the one where Amy Adams, Katie comes in to sell handbags in, in the office and all the men, well, especially Michael and Dwight are in love with her. And there's a couple things at the start. Jan, his boss is talking to him on the phone and he's not listening. (laughs) He's just bored by the world. And he can't pick up on any signals or social cues from Katie while he's introducing Katie to Toby because he introduces Katie to all these people. He introduces her to Toby and they kind of like, she says something nice. They're they're getting along. And then he's like, Toby got a divorce. <laughs> so he's just like sandbagging Toby out of the gate for no reason. Like <laughs> that is a great example of his petulance. Yes. <laughs> you know, like yes. he, he can't even waste a second on not throwing Toby under the bus as a potential rival. I mean, I don't really think Toby could be a rival for anybody. But, you know, like that is a common theme about Michael is his small-mindedness of that kind of thing. But then here is um, the two things that I think he does in this episode that are extremely dysfunctional, if not... <laughs> like, Criminal. Well, 
very rude. Right. He does one thing socially and he does one thing psychologically. So the things he does that's negative socially is that he puts Katie in a terrible spot by insisting on giving her a ride home in a moment and not giving her any time to think about it. So he finds out she doesn't have a ride. and He's like, oh, I'll give you a ride. I'll give you a ride. And he just insists and insists and insists. And he doesn't pick up on any of her facial expressions, social cues, uncertainty. He certainly doesn't have the wherewithal (laughs) to even give the option to her of, hey, you know what? I could give you a ride home, but no sweat. Think about it. Let me know. Right? He just insists on an answer in that moment, and that's not cool. Well, and that's <laughs> her. Yeah. I mean, I think this actually happens a lot more than I necessarily know, but where men just become very insistent on doing favors for women because they think that male female relationships are transactional. Like, I put these nice coins into this machine and I get sex out of it. Like, <laughs> there are a lot of men who feel that way. Like, they feel owed by women if they do these things for women. And Michael, though probably not nearly as nefarious as that, does skirt that line a lot. Like, yeah. He really believes, he doesn't seem to have a, a functional relationship with women as humans to the same degree that a normal person would he mm-hmm. he really he's so awkward and he's so lonely and he's <laughs> <laughs> so bad with women that you know any woman enters his, and then you think about it his life is the office and being there so any woman enters his sphere of influence and he's just like on it like a like does it all the time but he he's chasing them around making them feel awkward but he's so clear. Yeah, yeah. He. But the more, the the thing that I think is so awful about this scenario, and you see it a lot in Michael, is he doesn't. He doesn't have any empathy. Like he he just can't. Like he doesn't even. It doesn't seem to occur to him that he's putting Katie in a terrible position. Well, th- this even you know? happens with Michael uh, when Jim and Pam get married. What is the marriage about? The marriage is about. Michael, <laughs> at least that's what Michael <laughs> thinks, and like yeah. he should be able to give a speech, and he should be, you know, a central figure in this because, again, he has no empathy. Mm-hmm. He's not thinking about what Pam and Jim might want. Yeah, he's only ever thinking what does Michael want. Yeah, well, maybe a good heuristic then for this kind of scenario is unless it's an emergency, don't insist on things in a moment. Give people time to think about and psychologically adjust to a different scenario right? that might be presented to them, right? Whereas Michael has no time for that because he's so, 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 so fucking selfish. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's oh, unbelievable it's, how he... You know, it's <laughs> funny because we like him, but, like, in a lot of ways, he shares some characteristics with Cartman. Mm-hmm. Like, quite a... Well, yeah. his bad side. Like you said, bad Michael shares a lot of characteristics with, with Cartman. Yeah. And so that was like the social thing that he really fucked up in that episode. But the thing that I think is so psychologically damaging. So this is like what he does there. I mean, it obviously damages Michael because he's clueless. But it's also damaging Katie and potentially anyone else she's surrounded with. But what I think is damaging to Michael, and this is very deeply psychologically damaging, is that you notice how far down the path with Katie and he he- his head he goes before reality catches up. Ah, I like right? this, yes, like, yes. There's the he scene, does this all the time. Yeah, well, there's that scene where he's got Ryan to be his bitch and clean out his car for him because he's going to be giving Katie a ride home. He 
in one of his in the monologues of the camera he talks about like well, i don't know are we gonna get married i don't know i'm not it's, it's too far away <laughs> you know like he's it's a joke in the show but it accesses a deeper point of you notice how crushing his disappointment is at the end of the episode where katie actually goes home with or gets a ride home with jim instead of him like he's ready he invites her but he because i mean obviously because he's so clueless about women and katie and how what she might want he's the author of his own destruction here and like you feel a little bit of sympathy for him until you think about why it happened but i don't know like the more psychological self-harm he gets by again and i know we've talked about this before not having his self-narrative in enough realistic consonance with reality (laughs) Yeah, and I think I mean we we see this. Let's take for example the episodes with his uh, nephew, right, where he brings his nephew in to work at the company, and his nephew is just completely incompetent. But he feels the need, to, like his nephew has to become this rising star and has to become good. Again, he's projecting into the future way too far because his desires are so intense for him and in this case his desire to have some kind of legacy and to like have a mentee and someone who kind of like that he gets to raise up and teach and, and things like that are so intense that he just rejects reality in order to like his vision of the future becomes more important to him than reality itself <laughs> and then and this is a a constant theme for michael and then he just lives in la la land yes his whole life where things that should be minor are major to him it's in the scope of all things considered him not giving katie a ride home is a minor thing yeah but because of the way he thought about it it's crushing to him and what was that line from i heart huckabees we bring our own chains yes you know yeah and michael just psychologically so often brings his own chains to every scenario and it's i guess it's tragic uh it it does make you feel sorry for him (laughs) everything every time michael kind of gets is the butt of the joke or the short end of the stick you have like a moment of sympathy for him until you remember why he's there (laughs) yeah And then you're like, no, that's actually your fault. (laughs) You did this to yourself. I thought about this a lot in this particular rewatch was, is Michael unable to be self-aware of it or is he just unwilling? Like, that's a big question, right? And I think we feel sympathy a lot of the time because it's like, he doesn't seem capable of (laughs) self-awareness. Yeah. In this sense, when we're talking about bad Michael, we're talking about many of his behaviors that are that are genuinely awful. But still, we have this sense of like, oh, poor Michael, right? <laughs> Whereas with Cartman, for example, we love seeing Cartman get his comeuppance. And sometimes we like seeing Michael kind of embarrassed or things not going well for him. But a lot of the time, that's not the feeling we get mm-hmm. when things go poorly for Michael. We're like, ah. Oh. Well... <laughs> Okay, that's a hard question because there's so much data (laughs) to go off of. There are so many of his monologues or his, you know, his conversations just to the camera where it's just him, where he is rationalizing his behavior in a comprehensible way, but it's comprehensible only if you take into account his delusion at a macro level delusional about the world <laughs> yes, and at a micro yes. level very 
Well, he's very he's calculated. Great, he's great at rationalizing his delusion. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and he, and navigating. But I guess it's just something went wrong at the beginning for him, or at some point, and he's <laughs> unable to to correct that original mistake. Yeah, a lot of his problems are his rationalizations. He can't correct that mistake, and he has. What would you even say? Like he can't quite get to the point where he 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 knows that he shouldn't like he knows to pay attention to other people like when he's rationalizing it's all one direction back to him you know yeah when he's when he's not rationalizing other people are in his worldview when he is rationalizing they're not and like (laughs) another thing about him is he he seems unable and this is actually something i think about a lot i think that it is one of the beauties of this show his condition is difficult in the sense that he's in a dying industry. He's is massively probably what, overstaffed. What's that office. line in the commercial? A paper company in a paperless world. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So he's in a dying industry, and yet he loves the industry. His whole world is this is built around this the office and and how much he loves it. And I mean, there are so many touching moments where like. Pam draws the office and he looks at the picture of it and it's just like the most beautiful thing he's ever seen because that is his world. That's what he cares about most in the world. And yet, in the grand scheme of things, does a paper company surviving matter? Well, it matters to Michael. And part of his delusion is refusing to accept that the future is changing mm-hmm. and truly believing that what matters to him is what should matter to everyone. Yeah. As I'm just thinking about this now, maybe the most fundamentally broken thing with Michael is that he is so wrapped up in himself that he he just doesn't notice signals that would normally <laughs> change other people's behavior. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he he can't He doesn't seem to feel shame either. I mean, his shame seems to be in, like, other people don't like him. Right. Yeah. But he doesn't usually attach that you know to what it, You know what it makes me think of? You know those, like, pictures of the Earth's electromagnetism? Mm-hmm. And you see the magnetic lines, and they always, like, bend towards north or south based on where the world they are. Michael is the only pole to Michael. <laughs> right. So, all right. of the elect- all the lines of the social relationships and the psychological realities and science and the world they're all bending to him so he's he's fixed a variable everything is about him so he can't in his rationalizations i think why we like him is that when he's out of his rationalizations he's very lovable and thoughtful and kind to other people but just left to his own devices he keeps getting back into those rationalizations and so in a nutshell what is so sad about michael is that he doesn't have some sort of mechanism i guess in his brain that allows him to pay attention to the signals and the social corrections and the cues and all of the things that normal well-adjusted people are able to pay attention to to adjust their behavior yeah and so if you think about all of michael's behavior through the lens of him being unwilling and unable to do that make perfect sense yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. I actually think that that is a huge, I mean, that maybe is what happens to someone who is fundamentally unsocialized. 
Yeah. <laughs> in a way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like he does demonstrate all of these tendencies of someone who just can't realize there's other people in the world. <laughs> or can't, yeah, and can't realize that they might disagree with him <laughs> on things that really matter to him. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wonder if he thinks that part of the reason that he gets his way is because he's right as opposed to the fact that he's just such a whiny bitch all the time that no one really wants to argue with him. Yeah, (laughs) fair. Anyway, the next thing about Bad Michael that I really noticed is he is, uh, I mean, okay, so here, I'll set this up. In the Office Olympics episode, he gets Ryan to come in early just to bring him breakfast. There's no other reason. And, you know, temp life with Michael, but he's just, he's using the fact that Ryan is a temp to do the bitch work of going to get him breakfast when there's no reason Michael couldn't have just got himself breakfast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then, so that's like a funny example of what I'm going to talk about. This one I think is much more serious where in the injury episodes, so the classic one where he burns his foot on the George Foreman grill, when he manages to make everything about him, he gets a disability talk because he interprets everyone as being cold to that and not to him. Like, it's inconceivable that everyone in the office is distant and standoffish from him. So he interprets that as them being distant and standoffish from people who have a disability. Right? Right. He, he's, he's, right. This is the king of his delusion here. And so what he does is he totally patronizes Billy. So Billy is the, I think he's the building manager, and he's in a wheelchair. And so he gets Billy to come in and talk about disabilities. But it's never about Billy. Um, it's always it's about Michael, right? So he keeps interrupting Billy. He keeps, I mean, he uses inappropriate language for sure, but he he doesn't really understand the way Billy is talking about disability. So he just hijacks the meeting, makes it about himself. It was never about Billy, and it was always about him and his own ego. And so what is really, really terrible in those two examples with Ryan and Billy that Michael demonstrates time and time again in the show is that he fails what is known in philosophy as the categorical imperative. And the categorical imperative is from is an idea in moral philosophy from the philosopher Immanuel Kant that you should never use people as a means to an end, but rather as an end in themselves. And so when he is he's using Ryan to get him breakfast when there's no good reason. Like he's just, Oh, you're someone who has to do what I say. So go get me breakfast. Even though I could go get it myself, I'm going to use my authority over you to get what I want. So I'm, even though Ryan, <laughs> it's not always easy to believe with Ryan cause he's a bit of a shithead himself, but Ryan is a person with his own thoughts, his own worldview, his own opinions, his own way of being in the world who has to just bow down to Michael's will. So he's not treating Ryan as a person in his own right he's just treating him as something that he can do for michael and then what he's doing with billy is that he's using and this is why it's so terrible he's using billy's the fact that billy is in a wheelchair to he's using that as like a club (laughs) over the heads of all of the other people who are laughing at him because he can't not stand on a george foreman grill by his bed because he's an idiot (laughs) so so them laughing he had the george foreman because he wanted (laughs) he wanted he liked breakfast in bed he likes to wake up to the sound of crackling bacon (laughs) and he doesn't have a butler (laughs) so he had to do that and so right and so because michael and in this, so in this instance, because Michael can't stand the fact that other people are laughing at him for stepping on a George Foreman grill, he deludes himself into thinking they're laughing at his disability, not him. He gets someone to come who is disabled, who's in a wheelchair, who doesn't bring that up. Like Billy himself 
has no complaints. He's just talking about what it's like to, you know, manage a building. Michael makes it about the fact. So Michael uses Billy, who's in a wheelchair, to show why everyone should stop laughing at him who burnt his foot on a George Foreman grill. Yeah, and and yeah. like that is a disgusting fail of the categorical imperative to treat Billy and as he, his own person. But he does this all the time. I know. Right? Like he does it when uh, you know when they find out that Oscar's gay. Mm-hmm. Right, he's like it actually has nothing to do with Oscar. It's that he's afraid that he's going to get in trouble for how he's treated Oscar or something along those lines. So I think this is the this is definitely the, the absolute dark side of <laughs> Michael is that any situation like you said is brought back to Michael. But the funny thing about him is he's not smart enough, perhaps maybe that's the word, to be nefarious. Right, it's just in your face obvious what he's trying to do all the time uh, yeah i don't know it's it's so hard to know with michael what he's smart enough for because sometimes he shows flashes of brilliance and insight and yet then he just always settles back into his delusion and so there's a couple of things i wanted to just i guess give caveats on on the categorical imperative because i think one of the easiest things to notice about it is that we use people as means all the time and um, examples of that are are in jobs where we ask people to do things for us. But part of it is with the knowing that they get compensation through money or whatever, other things. Another classic case of where people say that people fail the categorical imperative is in sex, where you're using someone else for your own pleasure. So I think the more nuanced way to think about that categorical imperative is that you shouldn't use other people merely as a means to an end. Yeah, that shouldn't be where things yeah. end. But because, I mean, okay, so from my own life, I've had interns before, mm-hmm. and I've had them go get me breakfast. <laughs> so does that mean that I'm using them for, in a sense, I guess, but often they were happy to do that. Well, you have to do offer sometimes. I think you have to do a cost benefit analysis about your own time in that scenario. Yeah. Where if you have lots of stuff you have to do that, you know, is important to the overall vision and goal of your workplace. And that's part of the job description of an intern who theoretically has voluntarily been there in the first place. That's one thing. By the way, thank you, Carlina, for all the breakfast sandwiches. (laughs) (laughs) I think, well, so what's so awful about Michael in this scenario is that he comes in early himself. Like, there's no reason he couldn't have gone and got himself breakfast. He he comes in early and waits for Ryan to (laughs) bring him the breakfast. He's just sitting there doing nothing, waiting. So it's like a... I don't know. It's like a. I, this is an. It's one concept. thing of slavery almost, where it's just like, "Hey, I'm not doing anything." And and actually, so this reminds me of actually something that I think is super important in leadership, which is a whole theme that we should, mm-hmm. we should talk about with Michael yeah. as a leader. It, I've noticed as in leadership, if there's a shitty thing to do, and there's no good reason, like if you have let's say underlings, or as Dwight would say, inferiors. <laughs> if you have the those kind of people in your life and there's a shitty job to do and there's no good reason for someone else to do it other than you, you do that job. Yes. Yeah. So a, a funny and literal example of this is that a couple summers ago when I was working out at a summer camp, there was some outhouses and a kid got so close, but one of the kids just went behind the outhouse and took a big dump. Well, that's not where the poo goes. So someone had to clean it up and it was at lunchtime and like everyone's on break. Essentially, we're all just eating lunch. And I was a supervisor and I had about 20 people there who, if I had asked them to go clean it up, they would have because I was their supervisor and they'd have to do it. But there was no good reason for me to do that. 
right? There, there was no good reason someone else should clean up the shit and not me. So I'm the one who, I got the shovel and I went and did it. You know? Right, right. And yeah. imagine the scenario where Michael brings Ryan lunch. Yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> brings Ryan breakfast. Well, that's right? the funny thing about Michael is he loves being the manager. His whole identity is tied up in this being in charge. But still being their friend. Yes. Oh, yeah. He Like, he wants to be loved, but it's so important to him that he can kind of tell people what to do. And, like, his whole, his whole identity... Everything that he has is wrapped up in this. He's wanted this position for a long time. He's got it. And it's kind of funny. I'm sure we'll talk about Dwight later. But Dwight is a, in a similar place. Like he's, he's, <laughs> he's so deluded that Michael is the man that he's trying to emulate in a sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, maybe with Michael, it's a show and it's jokey. I do think we have seen massive, massively catastrophic examples of what can happen if you start to treat people as means to an end as opposed to an end in themselves. It's called the Soviet Union. I'm currently reading the Gulag Archipelago right now by Solzhenitsyn, and it's like a tome of a scream. Like, it's just a, it's hundreds and hundreds of pages of a scream of what has happened in the, in, in happened in the Soviet, like, between the arrests, the interrogations, and and how and and the transport between the prisons and the prisons and the conditions and how many people are in like the level of detail is incredible and how all of this system is because the individuals in this system are don't matter yeah the ultimate utopia or goal or paradise or the state is what matters and this kind of thinking I mean, the apocryphal or potentially apocryphal thing that Stalin said is that you can't make an omelet without, without cracking some, a few, eggs, some yeah. eggs. Well, guess what? Human beings are not eggs. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and so the collectivist utopian, the, the utopian thinking has to gloss over people who don't agree with them. And eventually, if you have power, you're going to snuff those people out. And so I think the most obvious and cataclysmic examples of the failure of the categorical imperative is what was behind the iron curtain yeah or uh i would argue mao's china as well uh i would put that behind the iron curtain (laughs) i mean obviously it's a different it's a completely yeah yeah i i agree what happened behind the iron curtain but i think they're very it's very interesting that the very first thing that communism went after was the artists and the intellectuals and the mm-hmm. the, the people who could challenge them yeah the heterodox uh, thinkers of their era exactly because what it really shows is just modern day witch hunts for people that disagree with you but interestingly enough michael is i guess a small version of that he's just a a inept and powerless version of that but when you take away the good in michael which i think is important to talk about and replace it all with that overwhelming desire to have power over others Mm -hmm. because as much as i agree with the assessment of marxist problem which is not treating the individual as an individual or treating the individual as a means to an end and that utopia is the goal what seems to happen in these systems is they get taken over by people whose personal interests, like Michael's, are more important than the, even the utopia. 
Lenin and Stalin, at the end of the day, there's a reason it's called Stalinism and Leninism Mm -hmm. and not Marxism, because what it ended up being was these men trying to keep their power. And a lot of, funnily enough, what we see in the office is is an inept and fairly incompetent, although with, as you said, flashes of brilliant... Uh, manager trying to keep his power, <laughs> yeah, or trying to uh, yeah. enforce his power. I, I guess, I guess the cha- the charitable thing to say about Marx then, or Marxism as opposed to Stalinism, Leninism, is that its analysis is incomplete and a little naive. So, if you want to just say, "Hey, we'll take, we'll be fair, we'll take it at face value," Marx's critique is at the level of economics. Marx would then, I think say and think that the economic level is the most fundamental one and i think what's clear is that a more fundamental level than economics is psychology yes and that's why the wolves take over the movements because they're the ones willing to do things worse than anyone else and especially in the name of a good cause the hard-hearted hard-headed who are getting what they want Mm -hmm. which is actually not the good of the people yeah it's the good of themselves so and i mean i guess moving on to this is related to what Michael does with Katie, but when you were talking about how he likes his power as manager and the esteem and the identity of it, but he still really wants to be friends with everyone. Uh, what is it? His line? He, uh, I want them to fear how much they love me. Yes. Well, <laughs> which I think is an amazing line and obviously one of the most famous, but here's another interesting dynamic. Who are the people that there's three kinds of people that, Michael interacts with at the office. There's the Jim and Pams who he kind of admires and just likes because he knows they're competent. And like as a manager and cool. And cool. And he as a manager, he needs them around. Then there's the people who like stuff their nose up his ass like twice. <laughs> like he loves the brown nosers too. But then thinking about his relationship with Toby, what is the difference with Toby? Toby or Stanley. Not, or Stanley. Well, Toby Toby's not actually under his control. He's corporate. He's HR at the branch. <laughs> so he's not really part so, of our so, family. So he's, <laughs> and he's divorced. So he's not really part of any family. <laughs> exactly, right? The threat that, or as you said, the threat of Toby is that Toby's not actually under his control. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but someone who can actually cause him problems yeah. if they want to. Well, so Michael is the king of awkward. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so what's interesting, too, when you were talking about that, it reminded me of this idea from anthropology about the three main human relationship types. And the main three main human relationship types are that of dominance, communitarianism, and reciprocity. Mm. And where the, the state of awkwardness comes in when there's a uncertainty of the boundary between those two so michael in the office it's a it well he's the boss they're the inferiors so it's a relationship of dominance but he insists on things like dinner parties and he insists on which is like hanging out which is what causes the awkwardness because then in another context how are they supposed to treat the man who is unbelievably immature who wants to be their friend but then if they do something in the communitarian relationship form which he doesn't like when he's back in the dominance relationship form is he going to take that out on them so he's being unfair and i think then to manage good relationships at the border of any of these three human relationship types takes 
upper echelon maturity. And a lot of the humor, I guess, of The Office comes from the fact that you are getting the polar opposite of upper echelon maturity from Michael while he's trying to skirt these borders between these relationship types. Oh, that's very insightful. I, I never, <laughs> I didn't know about those three different relationship types. Uh, well, like examples of being like the border between reciprocity and communitarianism, it'd be awkward to go to a friend's house and pay them for dinner. And pay them for dinner, right? right? Which is why they say never get into money things with your friends because then you're in a reciprocity communitarian. You know, we can probably think of lots of examples, but to negotiate those kind of borderline cases does take maturity. And so Michael has none of that. So that's why it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good insight. But then like, that's a show insight, I guess maybe for like a real life thought on that is something along the lines of, I don't know, maybe part of it is determining what your relationship type of those three is with another person and which one you want it to be. And being honest about it. Something someone told me once that has really stuck with me is your colleagues are not your friends. And particularly in my line of business where, you know, there's a lot of backstabbing and things like and trying to get ahead, which I mean, in all really competitive industries there is. But making sure you understand the difference between a colleague and a friend, I think is now it is possible for a colleague to also be a friend. But you have to make sure that that's the case and not just be like, oh, we spent a lot of time together. We must be friends, which is the the distinction that Michael cannot make because he doesn't have any friends really outside <laughs> of his colleagues. Yeah, which is rough uh, for anyone, but it is a really hard. It is a really important distinction to make because the people that have to be around you every day and the people who want to be around you every day are two very different groups of people. I would say not necessarily. They don't have to be. They don't have to be, but I think you'll notice the the difference in your time with them. Well, here's the thing. Doing your best then to not put the person in an awkward situation. So if you're out for drinks with your boss, not asking them too many personal questions. Because because then if you're in a communitarian situation, you don't want to have to have the person you're with demonstrate their dominance side. Yes. Or vice versa. Exactly. Because that can be really difficult for them. I mean, all of this is predicated, I guess, on the idea that everyone is deserving of these relationship types and they're functional and working well. But, you know, we're a species that's been around for millions of, well, hundreds of thousands of years. And, you know, our ancestors, millions and millions of years, like things are pretty deep rooted in the way we interact with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Next thing that's bad about Michael. (laughs) So in the fun run episode, it's the one where he hits Meredith with his car. She's in the hospital. Turns out she's been bitten by, I think, a squirrel and a bat. She so, has rabies. So she, well, she might have rabies. Mm. She never checked in, but you have to check. You have to get a rabies shot before you show any symptoms. Otherwise, it's too late. So Michael interprets the fa- this fact as vindicating him for hitting Meredith with his car because he saved because her he life. saved her, and so he thinks that a coincidence removes his respo- removes responsibility for his actions. Whereas the mature person knows coincidence is not, like, responsibility is not contingent on coincidence. It's what you intended to do. It's what you did. It's what, it's a nice happy accident that Meredith is now going to get a rabies shot. And then, you know, they do the fun run and it's hilarious, all of that. This is another demonstration of, well, I guess, like, how a really good example of this, too, I remember from Hitchens is saying that you can take someone else's punishment 
but you can't take their responsibility for an action. So he gives the example from A Tale of Two Cities where Sidney Carton takes the place of, I think it's Dan Charles, I can't remember his last name, but he takes the place at the guillotine. Like he he trades his life for this other guy, even though, but he, what he can't do is take the other guy's responsibility for his actions. You can't say you did something you didn't do. Right. You know? Right. Um, you can take the consequence, but you, can, you can't yeah, take yeah. the responsibility. I yes. mean, and that's maybe what's so powerful about the Christian narrative is that it's not just Jesus taking the consequence. He's taking the responsibility of the sins of others on yeah. him, which is yeah. what maybe makes him a deity as opposed to a person. Yes. At least, yes, in, agree. At least psychologically, right? Well, that, that, yeah. That, I mean, because that, that's so freeing because if, if the responsibility... Because we all kind of like subconsciously know that we're responsible mm-hmm. for our wrongdoing. And having someone come along and say, I will take not just, like you said, the consequences, but the responsibility. Yeah, I would I'd agree. Whereas when we're looking at Michael, let, let's take this example that you brought up of, of the fun run and, and hitting her. And he does the whole fun run to make himself look better. Yes. Like he's someone who would try and, run, and raise money for her, not actually anything about Meredith, especially the way he talks about Meredith in this episode. Oh, they're really hard on Meredith. All I love at the end, it turns out she's been doing her PhD the whole time. I know, it's great. <laughs> That's actually, yeah. Well, anyway, we can get into that later. But people rationalize. I, I think that like you, you were talking about high-level maturity, being able to distinguish the kind of relationship you have with someone and navigate the awkwardness of relating with them in different contexts. But I think another sign of maturity is the ability to to understand when you're wrong. And Michael completely... Michael is always covering up what he did wrong. And this goes back to what we've talked about a lot of times, but I think it's important to reiterate is Michael is interacting with the world in an animalistic way. In the sense that he all he cares about is being staying in his tribe and his tribe liking him. And any moment where he feels like the tribe was going to ostracize him or put him out into the wilderness, his biology kicks in and he's like, I need to do something to show the tribe that I'm good, that I'm valuable, that I should be part of it. And so he's not thinking on a higher order level. He's con- All he's doing is thinking like an animal who gets scared and is like, oh no, I'm going to be pushed out. So <laughs> I need to react. Yeah. Like, Michael is constantly... Self-preservation yeah, at all so- times. And, and the self-preservation, a lot of people don't think of self-preservation as social preservation, but that's actually exactly what it is because biologically, if you're not part of the tribe, you're going to die alone in the dark. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why ostracization, that's why, that's why in a prison, the punishment is solitary confinement. Exactly, because that's the worst thing you can do to someone. Mm-hmm. Just... Leave them with their own thoughts. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so I think... What really we're experiencing here with Michael is inability to distinguish the importance of his place in, in the social hierarchy, which he understands inherently, with higher order thinking of, about conscious beings. Mm-hmm. And I think going back to when, how he interacted with Katie, he's unable to distinguish the fact that Katie is a conscious being and is really only thinking of his biological need to mate. Mm-hmm. And obviously he's very attracted to her because she's attractive. Yeah. And and everything we see Michael do is is complete lack of higher order thinking. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> he's a warning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next thing, crime aid. 
He lies about having the Bruce Springsteen tickets so that he can get more people to come to the auction. So, I mean, he lies. He's a liar in this scenario. And can't believe, then he can't believe that people are bidding so much on Phyllis's hug. Like, it blows his mind that he's like, don't you know? It's just a hug. It's fucking worthless. What are you talking about? And so then people just being nice to help out seems to be miffing him. Obviously, the reason that, you know, Bob and Jim and then Dwight and I think one other person are bidding on Phyllis's hug are not because they think, you know, it's not Bob doesn't. I think it's like five thousand dollars. He ends up donating it's not that he thinks a hug is worth $5,000 exactly, right? It's that they are being kind to Phyllis and figuring out a way to actually get some money into this charity that, or this crime aid, you know, helping it out. But because of Michael's paradigm, he can't understand this. So I actually think I mean, he looks like a bore here and an idiot. But again, this is a this is a scenario where I think the biggest victim is Michael. Because what happens is, if this is your mindset, uh, there's so many things that will be hidden from you in the world of of human interaction that you can't engage in. That you know, as he says, he loves inside jokes. He wishes he wants to be a part of one one day. This isn't an inside joke. This is an inside piece of knowledge about caring about Phyllis and doing something nice for her. The side effect is you're also raising money for this, you know, arguably good cause. That whole part, that little that little thing that might give you a little satisfaction. Like we, the audience, we get a little jolt of satisfaction from this because we're like, yes, good job. And this is actually a part where Dwight really shines through because I think Dwight was an asshole to Phyllis most of this episode. So we, the audience, we're let in, we get it. But someone like Michael wouldn't. And, and I to me that's a tragedy where i would see like that's the inside thing he's not capable of being a part well and of. this is again i guess the question that we that i asked before but then raise again is that michael capable of self-awareness he doesn't seem to be he isn't even capable of understanding like that's pretty basic human socialization where it's like oh we are going to do things loving things for one another that are not that don't make sense right like for example, I worry about Michael's children. If they brought him like a, a drawing that they'd made when they were three and he looks at it, would he be able to say, oh, this is great? Or would he be like, oh, this is terrible. You're not a, as good of an artist as Pam. You need to go learn from Pam. Yeah. <laughs> like he seems incapable of basic human interaction. But more than that, he doesn't seem to understand that he's incapable. Well, yeah, you're right. I, the, so so is the he... more examples that are brought out from the show, the more it does seem like Michael has a certain level of incapability to start being basically empathetic or empathic. I don't know the right so, way to say so it. Maybe to other he's like a, a jolly you sociopath. Know what it, he, well, I would say when he maybe the time he is able to start doing this a little bit better is when Holly enters the picture. Yes, that's a yes. huge that's a huge change in his persona, and we can talk about that in a little bit, but. Michael's inability to be self-reflective, his inability to have his, as it were, his team shill moment, his thou mayest from our East of Eden episode, like the ability to choose because of self-reflection and to, to choose his path based on all of the relevant things in place and then still picking which one he wants. I think that's probably why we don't see Michael as evil as much as we see him as an object of pity. I think the person who is choosing those things is the evil person. 
and the person who can't choose is the one who but okay it's, it's a little bit two things here because i'm thinking michael in the show and then people in the world michael in the show seems to not be able to choose i don't know until i see conclusive i mean and we'll probably never see conclusive psychological evidence on this kind of thing i live as if people can choose right yes i agree so and i think that's the right way to live unrealistic yes because i think people don't have to be like michael it's not like they have to be Mm, that way maybe in real life it'd be more like because michael seems to be a hundred percent incapable of choosing of there's gradients of yeah i think probably in real life you might have people who are like 70 percent incapable 30 percent capable <laughs> it just depends on the amount of self-work they do and reflection of their own values and what they want out of their life and intentional thought let's say i think michael is such a figure in culture because he is an archetype of something that is like we said with Cartman he's in he's the end of a metric Mm -hmm. (laughs) right you can't imagine someone less self-involved sorry you can't imagine someone more incapable of self-reflection than Michael (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) like you can't really say what that would look like (laughs) you know it's hard to imagine I mean probably there's so many episodes of the office he is there's some I'm not thinking of right now but I think the point is good to make is that like his deepest flaw is one that he might not be able to fix, which means that he's not evil. He's just, I guess he's a, it's a warning sign. He's a, he's a like, he's a cautionary tale. Yeah. And well, and I think inherently probably subconsciously, we all know Michael's not evil. Right. Whereas we all do know Mark or Cartman is evil. And I think it isn't even the actions necessarily that tell it, that intention does matter. Okay. And, and Michael, I don't think, is is actually intending to uh, hurt yeah. people with his selfishness. That's a great way to put it. Michael Scott is maybe the most culturally vibrant example of the importance of intention in our intuitive moral psychology. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> because he can fuck up 99% of the time. And yet, because we know where his where he's coming from, he almost across the board gets a carte blanche every time. <laughs> I know. know, and people seem to. St- I mean, well, people okay. roll their eyes a lot at him. Mm-hmm. I think people that watch the show and people in the show obviously do it a lot. But for some reason, they kind of find him to be dear to them. Yeah. Well, I think too. One of the the most unrealistic part of this show is how the characters live without consequences. Yes. <laughs> yes. They just seem to go on and on and on with no thing. So we'll. Okay, but here's something that I just I noticed this note. I wonder. Did he do this part on purpose? Okay. So it's the episode where they do the murder mystery. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's all of this confusion going on about what's the future of Dunder Mifflin. So he plays the murder mystery game and everyone is like, uh, not everyone, a couple of the characters are complaining about how crappy their characters are. And Michael says, oh, you think your characters are crappy? I have to be handsome and a playboy. (laughs) So like... Is he making a joke there? But like, it doesn't seem like he knows that. It doesn't seem in that scenario that Michael knows that he's obviously the best character. Does he actually think being handsome in a Playboy would suck? Right. Does he? Does, does he, he have he... the awareness to think that <laughs> yeah. like those things because, might be empty? And here, let's try and tease this out a bit. If he knows that being a handsome in a Playboy don't normatively suck, then he's being ironic. 
which I think you can't be ironic unless you're self-reflective. If he doesn't know that, then it holds more true with our previous right. synopsis. However, it's almost impossible to, for anyone to believe that. Like, I can't believe that someone could unironically make that statement. <laughs> right. Hmm. So what do we think about that scenario about Michael? Ooh, that's a, that's a good point. Well, well me, or, or we, and we see flashes of this throughout the whole show, that there's a really deep side to Michael. <laughs> and maybe he's like, you know, being handsome and a playboy is a, an empty life, like on a philosophical level. And I mean, now I'm really stretching here, I feel like. <laughs> but there are flashes of that kind of understanding. Yeah, like Batman's that, depressed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ben, well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, like, it's hard to imagine Michael having that inside. Yes, I know. that. That's why I said I'm stretching. But like, uh, you're right. But he doesn't strike me as someone who understands irony at all. No, but and, he talks about it. Like he he knows the words for the concepts. Right. But he doesn't know the no, concepts. No, like he hasn't figured out the definitions. He's just like, these are words people use when describing situations like this. I don't know. Like, I guess that part of Michael, we could have a really long philosophical talk about about what is going on in his head when he says things like that. And that's... I mean, there's probably lots of examples. That's just one I wrote down because I watched that episode for this. In the wedding episode, Jim and Pam's wedding, he hates that others stole his joke, but it's not really his. It just needs to be about him, even though it's not originally his joke. He needs his presence. Mm-hmm. I think that's more of his. I, I Again, he's like a solipsist. You oh, know? yeah. He's, he's my, myopic to a yeah. level. Or... He, he unfortunately has too much. He has unbelievably large amount of overlap with Cartman. Yes. In the in the yeah. way he conceives of the world. And a little bit with Calvin too. From yeah. Calvin and yeah, Ross. actually. <laughs> Probably more overlap with Calvin than with Cart I mean lots of overlap with both. But like there is something in Calvin that is redeemable. Yeah. And there's something in Michael well, that's redeemable. And nothing in there's Carmen. nothing in Carmen that's, that's redeemable. True. Yeah. But their mentality is so eerily similar. I mean, maybe that's why I mean they're archetypes in some way like they're really complicated archetypes i yeah. think yeah of of the the shittiest way to be <laughs> here's one where i just don't like this is a perfect piece of data for michael not being able to be reflective so in in the wedding episode he doesn't book a room dwight gets a room Michael begs and begs and begs Dwight saying he'd do it for him. Dwight pretends that he doesn't have the room. It's actually under a Michael Scott. Michael says, oh, thank you. Takes the room. So it's an immediate test. And Michael says, well, you know what, Dwight? Sorry. I <laughs> know I can't. And like, it's like in an instant. And you're like, what person? What person would fall for that trap? That trap that Dwight sets for Michael says in big neon lights that you can see from 100 miles away, this is a trap. You know, like uh, and the the funny Admiral Akbar was talking about this. (laughs) It's a trap. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to think about Michael there. Like, did he fall for it? Is he because? Well, here's a scenario. He knows that. I don't think. Like the thing is, there's no interpretation of this where he knows Dwight's tricking him. Because there's no way his reaction is sensical. Like he's a he's a mentally unstable person if he thinks Dwight is tricking him, but still refuses him. <laughs> yeah. Unless unless 
he's like 25 steps ahead of everyone and he's playing some sort of super long game maybe he's that like necessitates kind of uber genius yeah or something. yeah no i, I think again like just... i would want to talk to other office fans about this part of michael where i just don't know what to think about his reaction because everything points in one direction mm-hmm. his gift to toby when he's leaving is he's not gonna be mean to him <laughs> that was pretty funny can't help but being ping one more time <laughs> <laughs> in the goodbye michael episode like talk about offensive <laughs> he's so clueless uh he doesn't know he in the happy hour episode he doesn't know he's on a date until jim explicitly tells him jim says hey we have three people we need a fourth and michael says sucks to be you <laughs> so not picking up he's socially clueless again in that happy hour episode he makes a scene with the management somehow the ambience notices this time like how did every other time the ambience around him doesn't notice but anyway i want to Go through some of his quotes, though. Bad Michael quotes. Okay. Because I think okay. this is a good capture of the humor of it. Cock in the hen house. <laughs> so he doesn't understand his own vulgarity or offense. Right. He's not self-aware. Right. <laughs> to be a, This is in the Hot Girl episode. To be a ladies' man, you have to appear to not be a ladies' man. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's something true there, yeah, about that. Like, that's the, weird. Like, it feels like he's right on accident. Frequently. He's a broken clock twice a day, I guess. Yeah. With yeah. This uh, kind well, the of, funny thing is... <laughs> He says that, and then he proceeds to be desperate, which yeah. is like the opposite of a lazy. Exactly what he said. Yeah, this the is constant why... requests. Like this is the thing. He seems to have some understanding of the world. Yeah, but then his actions almost <laughs> always reflect no knowledge at all. Hey, this could be a good like little throwback to our Goodwill Hunting episode, where he's like all knowledge, no wisdom. Yeah, because <laughs> he yeah. again he knows the words for the concepts, so he just doesn't just know doesn't the understand concepts. the concepts. Yeah, your job is being my friend, Pam. <laughs> Loves to bring this up when it benefits him, but ob- obligation obviously is not what friendship is. No. <laughs> he uh, he considers... But again, we talked about how he... Skirts those lines. Well, he doesn't understand those lines. Those yeah. lines don't exist for him mm-hmm. because he doesn't have people... Almost all of his dating relationships are through work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all of his friendships appear to be through work. Like, you don't see an episode where he has a friend outside of office. Yeah, people. I mean, the only thing he ever we really ever see him doing outside the office is his improv class. Right, and everyone in his improv class seems to be at least as standoffish of him as anyone in the office is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this one, he's talking about Billy, the building manager who was in the wheelchair. Did you see the born on the Fourth of July? I thought he'd be more like that guy. <laughs> and I, you know, the world collapsing down to just his thoughts. That's all that mm-hmm. it is, right? This is he's commenting on Meredith's minivan. She has one kid, no husband, and you're not going to find one in this thing. <laughs> Like, what an asshole. <laughs> yeah. In the Ben Franklin episode, it's my job to ensure you all don't look like a ragamuffin. And I'm like, obviously, that's not your job, Michael. <laughs> he considers the fact that he's the manager as an open invitation to be in charge of everything else in everybody's life. Like their weddings. Yeah. Uh, he says this to Ben Franklin, the guy who comes in, who he thinks is a stripper for the women because that's equality to him. Are you wearing a thong? <laughs> and so he has no tact or boundaries. He always is using terms incorrectly. Double jeopardy, we're fine. That's not what it means. No. I have to be liked, but it's not compulsive. Like my need to be praised. And so this is, again, a reference to what we talked about earlier. It's a little bit confusing. He's both self-aware and self-deluding in one great stroke. And maybe that's the genius of the office. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> he confidently doesn't know anything. European offices are naked all the time. <laughs> Funny, but also you don't know with someone as clueless as him. So he, in the crime age, so much for sex without consequences. <laughs> 
because he stays late with Holly, yeah. and that's why people are able to sneak yeah. in yeah. so much for sex without consequence. <laughs> You're going to be sleeping by yourself for the rest of your life to Toby? Oof. <laughs> it's, he's just mean to yeah, Toby. Yeah, he's so mean to Toby. That part... Now, this is just funny, but when Jim accidentally reveals that Pam is pregnant and Mima gets mad, he makes it so awkward. It's just a different sensation. Well, it's true. It might not be for the women, but it is for the man. I mean, it's a joke, but what kind of person could say that? Yeah. <laughs> at a wedding? yeah. His ignorance, it's after midnight, you're married. <laughs> like their wedding day, they're married right, at midnight. Right. But he's so confident in his ignorances, right? In the murder episode, he thinks he's bragging when Dwight says he sent him an email. You'll have to be more specific, Dwight. I get like eight emails a day. <laughs> and he thinks he's bragging. And that's <laughs> like eight emails yeah. a day. Yeah. Uh, his cluelessness to Angela, was it just me? This was in the Goodbye Michael episode, his last one. Was it just me or did you think we were going to have sex sometime? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a perfect example of something he does a lot that would get him fired. Yes, it was just you, Michael. Yeah. And <laughs> no one else in happy hour that. when Date Mike comes out. I watch reality dating shows like a hawk. It's like, oh my God, what an idiot. I don't know. So his his deepest bad, Michael, is his selfishness, his delusion, and his solipsism, I guess. And everything kind of manifests from there. Yeah. And yet the reason we think he's not evil is because he can't help it. And he's got good intentions. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. And so, finally, (laughs) that brings us to good Michael. What are the things that make us love this? It's hard to believe that it exists, but it is there. First one, go by the beat of another drummer. He tries hard, but he doesn't know the expressions. And there's something a little bit charming about this. Yeah. (laughs) When he's not using the expressions to just get his own way, which are few and far between. Like, maybe this is just a humorous part of the show, but I love the way he messes up common expressions it's like it's a little bit different than ricky from trailer park boys who messes them up i I don't know maybe it's the same rickyisms where ricky will say things like worst case ontario or it's not rocket appliance i guess it's the same because michael like we know what michael means or when he says they're trying to you slurp me or something you know there's something charming when he's not being an asshole there's there's a charm in his way of doing that in the office Olympics. It's not offensive because that's how they talk in movies. <laughs> but then, like, that's getting at a deeper point here, which I don't think Michael is doing on purpose, but I wanted to bring up as something interesting. What actually counts as offensive? Hmm. Because anyone can find it if they want to. So here's a, a little anecdote that was revealed to me through Christopher Hitchens again in one of his in one of Hitchens' great defenses of free speech. 
that he gave at the University of Toronto in 2006, he references, I think it's the 18th century person, Samuel Johnson, the first compiler of the dictionary, the first English dictionary. As the story goes, Samuel Johnson was waited on by all the high-class people in London, congratulating him on his fine work. And a couple fine ladies came up to Dr. Johnson and said, we want to congratulate you, Dr. Johnson, on not including any obscene or indecent words in your dictionary. And he replied, I want to congratulate you ladies on looking them up. <laughs> and the point there... Oh, Dr. Johnson is incredible. <laughs> like, he's one of my favorites. I have his biography. Yeah. I, but like, the, yeah. the important philosophical point derived from that story is that there will always be something to offend someone if they're looking for it. And there will always be people looking for it. Yes. So it's the... What I find utterly incomprehensible about my era, and maybe I shouldn't because it's people, is that who is the person who knows, who has a transcendent enough knowledge to know what counts as offensive and what doesn't? I mean, obviously, you can be offended. What chimpanzee do you know out there that you want to be in control of what you read, what you hear, and what you learn? Who who should get that? The big problem is, like you said, censorship. Like, if you're offended by something... If it's not your jam, don't bring the toast. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I, there are things that I find offensive that I just don't pay attention to. Well, this is what is so so wrongheaded about. I mean, I don't even know if it's still a law, but the hate speech law in Canada, it's well intended and it's completely philosophically unjustified because all it takes is one person to say oh, that was hateful. And then you have a law. Well, and then have, what happens if everybody says that? Well, we have a thing in Canada called human rights tribunals in which the accuser has to pay nothing for their accusation and the defendant has to pay for their own legal defense. And there have been zero cases, zero cases of the defendant getting not being charged. Like, yeah. It's a kangaroo court. Uh, and this is a big problem that Orwell outlines for us is this idea that you know, as soon as we're policing people's speeches and then thought, mm-hmm. as soon as we're doing that, we live in totalitarianism. Yeah. And I agree. What is offensive? Now, I mean, okay. What's awkward? That's easier to define. You could say, <laughs> well, that was awkward. Or, and like, here's the thing if someone's truly offending a lot of people, you can ostracize them, which is a very effective method of. Well, changing that's, behavior. That's the better way to do it. Yes. Because, like, how the fuck are you ever going to legislate hate? You know? Yeah. I, I, uh, I consider obsessively ideological people or I have fundamentalist Christians or fundamentalist Muslims. Like, I find the things they say pretty hateful. <laughs> right. Well, do I get to define what counts as hate speech? You know what? I don't want that job. And I don't think anyone should. And I think that the people who do want it are the most nefarious. How do people not see that? And I think we need to dig down to why do they want it? Why do they want that power? Mm -hmm. Well, this is what the point of Samuel Johnson's story is that the ladies were determined to be offended or not. Like they scoured an entire tome, the first ever dictionary, just to find words that weren't there. Are those kind of ladies you want, like not ladies, like are those the kind of people you want telling you what you're allowed to read and think and write and learn about? No, because the people who want to control content are the most boring people on the planet. And 
is life not a thousand times too short for us to bore ourselves? The, yeah, they're they're boring, <laughs> but m- more interestingly than that, they are like you said, ideological. And their ideology is nefarious, not because they believe it, but because they think everyone else should. Yeah. Well, okay. Final question you got to ask yourself is, what chimpanzee, just like you, do you think is good enough to tell you what to read and learn about in the world? But the thing is, Luke, I think a lot of people, a lot of people think that they're good enough to tell other people what they should do. No, no, I'm not talking to them, I guess. Right. I'm talking to everybody else. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) I think it's, people should be tactful and inoffensive and i say that in quotes because they want to be not because they're told to be right right that's the team shell moment in the olymp office olympics episode at the end he gets a gold medal i think or a bronze a silver i can't remember he's he's on the podium and he gets tears in his eyes because he actually feels cared for yes (laughs) you know yes and there's something so endearing about that scene with him well i think that's the emotionally tragic thing about michael is we are looking at an individual who doesn't have people in his life that love him doesn't appear to have a family although he does talk about his mom at times doesn't have friends outside of work colleagues like (laughs) there are people like this there are more people like this than well a lot a lot of people (laughs) the humor in the moment is that how far off the mark michael is (laughs) you know like he he has no idea why this is happening right no, <laughs> but he just like people are cheering for him, and and that doesn't happen a lot for but, Michael. Yeah, I know, but I think it's just it it de- what it does is in the show it demonstrates more broadly how important it is to a feel like you belong somewhere, and b for everyone else to make sure that someone knows that they want them to belong there, even if it's a jokey thing like the Office Olympics. I think there's something. Like, there's something so sincere in Michael's reaction to the fact that everyone's cheering for him and happy for him that, I don't know, like, it's it, it's so conflicting in our intuitions about Michael because of all the shitty things he does. But it's like, oh, maybe, maybe this is the real Michael, <laughs> you know? Like, again, I have my issues with deep essentialism, but let's just say, you know, as a linguistic shortcut, the real Michael is the one who feels things sincerely. And I think that is what pulls at our intuition so hard into liking him. And he demonstrates that really well there. Okay, here's a here's something I forgot about, but I really like about him. In the Benjamin Franklin episode where, you know, they get a stripper for, I guess it's, is it Bob and Phyllis's wedding that they're, I think it is. I think it's for Phyllis's wedding. Yeah, that's her And so they get, they, <laughs> they get a stripper for the men and the women, but it's, Jim doesn't actually hire a stripper. He just gets someone from the Heritage Society or something like that to dress up as Ben Franklin and come and answer the questions. But all the women and Michael think it's a stripper, that it ends up Ben Franklin's actually a creep and he's trying to hit on one. I can't remember. Anyway, all of that aside, he gets really uncomfortable when the stripper is on him. You know, he talks a really big game. Oh, yo, I'm a ladies man, blah, blah, blah. But he has a girlfriend and he feels bad. So he's dating Jan at this moment. And he wants to tell Jan about the stripper because he feels loyal to her. And he just, like, it's tugging at him the guilt that he's cheating on her, even though what's cheating? I mean, he gets sort of a half of a lap dance, not even. And I don't know, like, I was just like, oh, man, like, he's got a conscience here. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I find most interesting about Michael is he does seem to have a fairly robust, like, right and wrong. Uh, on a on a macro level, 
right? Like things like cheating, things like fairness, things like protecting his office and trying to keep it alive and trying to keep it open and realizing that pe- real people are impacted by decisions that are being made on a larger scale. He seems to understand that people need to be loved under him too, mm-hmm. although, with, with the exception of Toby. Um <laughs> He doesn't yeah, but he's really, an alien. Doesn't, doesn't see under him, but underneath his rationalizations and his delusion and all of that, the thing that shines through most about Michael is that he genuinely cares about other people, mm-hmm. and like that's the tragedy of Michael and Jan. Yeah, is that Michael genuinely loves her. And like, we'll do anything for her. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's that. She episode, doesn't the, really reciprocate. There's the it. dinner party, right? Where where is he forced to sleep? Like, it's so <laughs> tragic. Like, it's bigger than it looks. Yeah. <laughs> At the foot of the bed, like some kind of dog. Yeah. And he's doing that, and it isn't out of even I don't think desperation mm-hmm. for sex or whatever. It's because he cares so much, and he's so longing for intimacy and mm-hmm. affection that he's willing to put up with almost anything mm-hmm. to get it but i think that longing makes him sensitive for it in others and in his best moments willing to give it to others definitely this is such a great little flip of the script for michael where he's often maybe saying a good thing but has terrible behavior <laughs> Yes. Yes. This this the, what's so great about this episode is he's the whole episode he's talking up the stripper and how fun it is. And I mean, like he just he's like he can't stop laughing in the sex shop. Like every he's so juvenile. Everything is so fun, like all the dildos and everything are just like setting him off. And yet, as soon as it's like a rubber hit the road moment where the stripper is actually there and it's manifest and it's physical and she's dancing for him, he's like, "No, I can't do this because I'm with Jan and I feel like I'm cheating on her." And I don't want to do that. And it's so great because it's like, oh, well, there are moments where his behavior is the good thing and what he says is the bad thing. Mm-hmm. Not just both of them being bad, I guess. And I liked that. I was like, oh, that's a good Michael moment. Oh, here's a good one too. Uh, it's the episode. It's the fun run. Dwight, I think, <laughs> for lack of a better term, euthanizes <laughs> Angela's cat. Yes, yes. <laughs> and Angela's feeling really distraught about all this. And no one really seems to be caring, certainly not Dwight. And Michael's been gone for a lot of the episode. He comes back and Angela says, is like, he knows Angela's cat's name. He actually cares about that part of Angela's life. And it's like an example of the little things that show you're interested and that you care. And he also does this with Pam when she has her art gallery exhibition. And he shows up and he's the only one who does. And it's like, there's no pretense in either of these moments. He's so sincerely reacting to Angela and Pam in those two different scenarios in a way that shows that he is not just, he's not just there or saying these things to make them feel better. Like he, he can't, you can't fake that level of sincerity in the way he responds. And those are both examples where Angela and Pam feel unbelievably grateful to Michael that he's the only one who, and I mean, this is a great office way of telling a story too, because we've seen in both those episodes, all of the people not caring, all the people not caring about Angela's cat, all the people not really going to or caring about Pam's art exhibition. For some reason, Michael's not involved. As soon as he is involved, he's in it and he's really caring about it. And I, I don't know, like, Again, I think it's unbelievable to have all of these different attributes in the same person in real life, but there's something about the the way that Michael is there 
that I think is unbelievably endearing. Yeah, I I mean this is these are the moments that everyone when you're talking about Michael talk like talk about as positives of him like oh man wasn't it so cute when he showed up at the art exhibition because it's like he lives in his own world when he's planning it but when he's not planning it he's just when it's just an arising thing he's so kind and it's, good it's almost as if his subconscious is his positive loving self and his consciousness is this mangled <laughs> um unsocial being but i think the other thing when we were talking about leadership earlier and we were giving examples of why he's a bad leader but this is one of the things where he's a really good leader and he's a really good leader because he does genuinely care about everyone in the office and this reminds me of oscar right i think it's interesting to see how distraught uh michael is about oscar being gay at first i don't think it's because oscar is gay it's because this fact about someone that he cares about ostensibly has been hidden from him and then he goes overboard in trying to like help oscar <laughs> to say the be least <laughs> a better gay man you know what i mean which is endearing in this sense yeah he's he's completely bungling it but the endearing part is that he's doing it because he really cares <laughs> <laughs> yeah he does really care and i think he cares about almost everyone in the office it's when he's because like, we talked so much about how he gets involved, so self-involved in his own thing. And yet these caring and endearing moments happen when he's not doing that. Like he's not, Pam's art exhibition is not about him, right? right Angela's yeah. cat is not about him. It's about her. And it's it's like uh, when he doesn't have time to think about it, he's so good. <laughs> and I <laughs> just weird... wonder why, like, I mean, obviously there's a lot of butt kissing in the, in the case of Dwight and Michael's relationship, but there's also a genuine friendship. And... I think some of that is things that Dwight sees in him. And he, like, Dwight is, if, if Michael's a hard antisocial person to understand, like, Dwight's even further, right? He's even weirder than Michael is. And Michael just seems to love him, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And finds many of the things that Dwight does endearing and, like, knows about Dwight's life, right? Mm -hmm. I think maybe one of the things we love the most about Michael in all of this is his relationship with Holly and right. how that works out. Right. And when he's, in although the... there's a creepiness to it too. Like he's creeping on her. Well, I mean this whole, like he won't give up on it. And oh yeah. In a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And... That part, that's not a good part. <laughs> that's a <laughs> like, bad Michael part, but it is an example of how <laughs> there's someone for everyone. Well, someone like Michael, if it turns out well, we're like, it's good. But if it hadn't turned out well, we'd be like, Oh, that Michael guy is so creepy. Right? Mm -hmm. But I'd like to hear more why you why you see this as like I agree. Well, okay, so it's the I, I think part of it that, that is so great is the goofiness. Like he he Holly is his level of goofy, and there's a number of times with his facial expressions when he's learning that there's this new person in his life that is their personality is so in consonance with his. And I mean, uh, it's such a great joke that she's an HR person because he... He, he hates he, HR people. Yeah, he yeah, hates exactly. HR people. But I think one of the big payoffs of their relationship is in the episode where he's leaving. Like, it's his last episode. And he starts to get really scared. He's second-guessing himself. He's not sure. Like, he can't even remember what city in Colorado he's going to. Uh, I don't know, Oscar asks him some questions that he can't answer and he's feeling kind of small and in a diminutive state. And so what he does is he calls 
Holly because all these changes are overwhelming him. But the voice of Holly calms him. And that's what calms him down and gives him gives him strength, right? And it's like an example of the beauty of love, I think. And it's so important that like he doesn't have anything except her voice. It's her voice that calms her, him down. Just the sound of her voice. Not even anything she says. Just her, her happiness, her goofiness, her silliness. It puts him back in a good spot. And what struck me about that scene in particular was it made me, I guess, think that a person's voice is the fingerprint of their soul where I think it's easy to take someone's voice for granted. And I don't mean like their perspective. I mean, the actual um, sound, and uh, the sound of, of their voice that, yeah. that, and the emotional reaction you have to that. And if you've ever lost anyone in your life, nothing I've, I've not come across anything that has an, as an emotionally charged form of memory as hearing a recording of their voice or hearing their voice again, because it's something you'll never actually get to hear again in real life. And so I think that there's something so deeply hidden in the power of someone's voice and hearing it and someone you care about and their sound and the sound of their voice. And again, you know, no two people's voices are exactly the same, which is why I, and because it's, hearing someone talk and talking to someone is the gateway to someone's soul. And because it's unique, that's why I call it the fingerprint of the soul is someone's voice. And that's a resolution moment to Michael and Holly's relationship that they've been building this whole time where in a moment, Michael's course corrected back again to where he wants to be. He's in charge again. He's in control. He's feeling pacified because he's doing the most important thing, which is going to be with the person he loves. And if, and if you look at uh, Michael's life and and throughout the episodes, what is the thing that Michael wants more than anything? It is actually to have a family and to have someone mm-hmm. to love. And, and like this is made brutally o- obvious, but I think not truly appreciated when discussing this with other people or laughing about Michael is that really deep down all Michael wants is people to love him. Yep. He's dying for love. And the only place he's been getting it is at work a little bit, but it's so much of it is fake in the sense that they work for him. Yeah. They have to be there. And Holly loves Michael for Michael loves (laughs) all of the things about. She's like the only one. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe Jim and Pam, they seem to love him too, but they, it takes a while for them to get there. Yes, I think. Whereas Holly's like immediately there, (laughs) which is, you know, it's great. It's nice. Yeah. Let's see. Other good Michael. Oh, I really liked this. At Jim and Pam's wedding, when Mima's getting all upset because, you know, kids these days, um, having sex before marriage, etc. And he goes to Mima's room and he says, look, Mima, I think you just need to chill out. <laughs> yeah. And what I liked about that, given his, you know, his social graces aside, what I liked about that is that he's pretty hard-nosed in this scenario. And I, I guess I'm a passive maybe not so passive champion of hard-nosed goodness where Mima you're from a different era and your worldview on premarital sex is at least antiquated if not totally confused people can be together like what so this is implicit in everything Mike in Michael is saying when he says you need to chill out Mima you're making your worldview more important than your relationship with Pam and Jim and Pam and Jim <laughs> clearly love each other. There's 
no more perfect couple in the history of humanity than Jim and Pam. They're working towards things. I mean, this is a much broader critique I have of the Christian guilt complex with sex and the way that that is inculcated in young people in Christian households. (laughs) The most normal thing we do is the thing we should be most ashamed of. I think that's pretty fucking terrible way to raise young people well it's a really good way to control people <laughs> yes. i think that's like and i don't I, guilt I, is a strong I'd control like just to say that i i think those people who are educating people in that way aren't doing it necessarily to control people on a conscious level like i think they genuinely believe uh, that it's important but like you said there's nothing more natural than our desire to reproduce mm-hmm. or well, maybe our desire to survive yeah. Like to eat and to have shelter. Okay. There's obviously so many confusing things, hang ups, weird things that need to be worked through and talked about when it comes to sex because of the psychological and emotional and, you know, spiritual and social everything around it is fraught. Yes. <laughs> there are a lot of tripwires yeah. when it comes to discovering your but, sexuality but- in the world. The answer to that is not across the board shame and guilt oh. for the impulses well, in the first place we'll appreciate what what uh, michael's doing here and why what uh, mima is doing is so bad is that at the end of the day if what's most important to you is your own worldview and this is the funny thing what's most important to michael well himself primarily it would seem mm-hmm. and yet not actually because He's not controlled by some. This is he's actually a little bit further ahead than Mima. <laughs> crazy right? enough, as crazy as this is, Mima is stuck in this. This is right. This is wrong. This is the way the world is. And if you're violating that, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, this is what I believe is right. This is what I believe is wrong. And I'm going to live my life according to those principles. But I am not going to try to enforce my principles on everyone else. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I guess the limit of that would be, like, our laws and our ethics. I mean, uh, I think it's important to enforce but on I others to not murder. I don't think it's important for <laughs> you and I to enforce that. Uh, right? Not in our current society, but I think it would be contingent on us and imperative on us, actually is a better way to put it, to stop a murder. Yes. <laughs> if yes. we saw one. Yeah. Or stop uh, a heinous moral infraction if we were around it, I mean, it'd be a pretty paltry excuse to say, well, we're not cops, so we can't. <laughs> right. I think. Right. But I know what you're saying because it's... it's Because giving violent or giving individual humans as opposed to institutions the ability to, you well, know, determine what okay, is here's, justice. Okay, here's what it is. And this is why I think everything bleeds into philosophy. What's the difference between murder and premarital sex i mean it's a stupid it's a it strikes us as a silly question because they're so obviously different i you still need an argument you still need to describe hey look well the reason why we want to stop murder (laughs) is because it unfairly removes someone's continuation in the world and all the joy and benefit that they and others around them get from them continuing into the world because we know what it's like to exist and there's a lot of joy there still so it's unfair to remove that from someone. I mean, that's a very low-resolution argument against murder. <laughs> There's obviously way better, more detailed ones, as opposed to the reason why premarital sex is not horrible or not something is because, well, if we want to take 
a non-religious take, sin, the, the concept of sin as a metaphysical entity is asserted, not demonstrated or proved or found evidence for, and then used as a way to control. And also sex is an unbelievably important part of the loving relationship and should be nurtured and grown and talked about and educated and not just demeaned. It's part of our evolved sense. It's how we got here. This is why I, like, I think it's even technically the most normal thing humans do is because how that's, that's why we're here. Yeah. (laughs) Like the sexual dimorphism and the way that sex evolved in humans is even why we're here. So what could be crazier than feeling guilt and shame about the reason we exist? <laughs> Only an ideology intent on controlling others could come yes. up with such yeah. a thing. Yeah. I would say on that point that there is a wisdom behind controlling your sexuality. Because sure. if you let it run rampant like it would at a purely animalistic level, there's all kinds of problems that arise from not having some kind of control and discipline around sexuality. And I think mm-hmm. that honestly, the reason that civilization, almost all civilizations came up with like, this needs to be controlled is because it was so problematic and, and continues to be problematic in that it is messy. And it, like you said, there's all kinds of tripwires around it. Well, here, I'd put it to you this way. Just because a really bad solution has been given to a problem doesn't mean there isn't a problem. Yes. It just means right. we need a better solution. We need a better solution. I and agree. and maturely discussing these things with growing young people is a better solution than just guilt-ridden abstinence. Now, Mima obviously has this worldview. That's only part of what was so impressive with Michael in this scene. Though. What, what is, I think, more a little bit even more interesting or as a, like a thought to leave with about on this particular topic is that what might be easier is to just let Mima have her opinion in the corner or whatever. Well, <laughs> so, sort of what Pam and Jim yeah, are trying to do. Yeah. They're like, okay, we'll fool her. She can have her thing. Or even like, or even the more equivocal perspective where it's like, well, you know what? Who's really to say who's right? Us or Mima, you know? And I think that there's just something in our culture right now that is not hard-nosed about these kind of things where Michael is hard-nosed here and he says, look, Mima, you just got to chill out. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Your attitude is driving a wedge between, I don't think Michael actually says this, but he, like what you could say to Mima is like, Mima, your attitude on sex is more important to you than your relationship with your, well, I guess it's her granddaughter and your future grandson-in-law. And that's fucking crazy. So chill out, realize they're not bad people. People have kids. Sometimes they have them before they're married, and that's fine too. They love each other, and that's actually what matters here, not your hangups. Yeah. yeah. And I think all that is true, and yet that's not communicated to Mima unless someone like Michael goes and says, you need to chill out. <laughs> yeah. So his hard-nosed take is actually what is healthy for the entire environment of people he's with. So don't be afraid of the hard-nosed take. I liked this too at Pim and, Pim and Jam. <laughs> Jim and Pam's Jim and wedding. Pam's wedding. He's annoyed with Dwight because he doesn't want to date Isabel. And he's good-hearted because of Isabel. Like he's, well, A, he can't believe that Dwight would ever not want to date someone as hot as Isabel and so obviously into him. But part of it is he's annoyed because he feels like Dwight's leading her on. Mm-hmm. And he's Which pissed. Which Dwight is. Well, Dwight totally is. And Michael sees this and he's pissed off. And, like, it's not cool to 
to lead, lead people to, on. Well, what happens is, you know, part of respecting another person as an end in themselves and not a means to an end merely is to be honest with them about your intentions with them because if they're not synced, then that's an obvious case of you're moving towards heartache and, and hurting someone's feelings. And Dwight, I guess, is caught in this weird ambivalence where he wants to have sex with her probably more, but he's not interested in dating her. And, I mean, that's an obviously common phenomenon in the world. Yep. And what's really cool about here is Michael is actually sticking up in a weird way, and I don't think he could articulate it, but Michael is actually sticking up for Isabel's personhood in this moment. Yeah. Yeah, don't like treat her he's an anti he's actually performing the categorical imperative and i would so he's a contradiction and i would actually uh point out here on that point that people like michael are often more sensitive to that sort of mistreatment of personhood because they've been through it and honestly this is an example of michael learning from his own life experience he knows what it feels like to be led on to be rejected to for people not to love him. And so he's, and this is the wisdom you can get from people that maybe you don't respect, right? It, because there are people who have had harder lives than you. There's that great line from the great Gatsby, like, you know, not everyone has had the same, you know, the same benefits that you've had, basically. Uh, and in the case of Michael, he's not saying this to Dwight, but but he's learned the, that pain. He's learned what it feels like. And so he's more sensitive to it. And I think, a wisdom that we can all learn is when people struggle with something, they are often more sensitive to it in others uh, when they're doing it. And so they'll call you out on it. And instead of immediately reacting and saying, oh, I'm not doing that or like, what's wrong with you? Think, oh, maybe the reason they're calling this out in me is because they have firsthand knowledge of this particular pain and they want to stop. Instead of saying, oh, you're just doing that because you can't get women or you're just doing that because you're jealous or all these things, be like, ah, scrub away and peel away the um, notions you have of why a person's doing something and just look at the the rawness of that emotion and you might, you're, you're likely to find something, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Still at Jim and Pam's wedding. This is so interesting. So, I mean, this is obviously when Holly is not in the picture and he's not dating anyone. So at the wedding, he talks to Helene, who's Pam's mom, and he's not aware that she could be what he wants. And so he's nice and charming when he's not trying to hook up with her. And he does this too with, I think, Donna, the lady he is the other man with. Like she's actually married and he's the other man and he doesn't know it. (laughs) Yeah. And then has that huge moral conundrum. Well, he's very interestingly... Yeah, yeah, of course. That is a, a weird conundrum, I guess. Yeah, anyway. He's so kind and nice and charming when he's not trying to be what he thinks a woman would want out of him. I think this happens all the time. Okay, okay, but maybe what is instructive about Michael is that, like Aladdin, I guess, probably authentic, true feelings for for you come when you're not trying to get them. Yep. That's yeah. that's so like the difference between Mike, the difference between Michael and date Mike, is massive. Pam's friend Julie really likes Michael when they're out on that double date. When Michael doesn't know he's on a date, 
But as and soon as when, she knows he's on a date, it's and like, oh. and the things Michael is saying to Helene at the wedding, and Helene is all pissed off because Pam's dad is there with a woman who's like only a little older than Pam, even. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so she's all feeling maybe kind of older and jilted, <laughs> and Michael is showing her care, and it's because he's not trying to get in her pants, <laughs> and then ends up getting yeah. in her pants, <laughs> and yeah, well, again, instructive. Yes. <laughs> Not to be uh, like, that's the goal, but I don't know. I think that there's, well, okay, here, like from the point of view of psychology, the psychology of attraction is, I guess, someone who would like to be with you, but doesn't have to be. Yeah. I think that's incredibly and important. So when Michael is being that way and, you know, once it's, once maybe, I mean, he doesn't, in the end, he doesn't treat Helene very well. <laughs> no. Well, but, this is the But problem. not in this episode, right? He doesn't treat many yeah people well but that's because he's starting to think again and think and think and think and he's a perfect i mean michael is so manic in his thinking he's a perfect example of that line i think it's hamlet where it's a sickly door with the pale cast of thought <laughs> yep <laughs> and, or, or and how he does that a huge overthinker right yeah but when he's not he's so charming and kind and that's what helene likes about him and there's something really cool about that um he genuinely tears up at their wedding and then this is really cool in the murder mystery. He starts the murder mystery to distract others from their anxiety. He sticks to his character to keep others at peace as life is so out of our hands. And that's like in a weird way, he seems kind of in touch with the tragic element of life. Like so much is out of our control. Let us have this just one little dumb game. He said, they need this game. Let them have this stupid little game on helping out the office. And this is something he actually teaches Jim. <laughs> it's like yeah, people need yeah. this dumb little game because the, the vast swirling chaos of the world is so far out of our control let us just have the little thing that we can one of the things my mom always would say to me is make sure your tea is the right temperature because you can't really control anything else <laughs> and it's a good little heuristic for not heuristic. driving yourself crazy yeah because part of the problem in this episode is jim is driving himself crazy with thinking about this and then when jim gets bad news he's a little bit more devastated than michael is because michael is preparing for the bad news by being distracted from it in a way that like, or like maybe in a fucked up way, Michael's saying, hey, look, I actually can function without this job because I have my dumb little shit that I can do at the side. Right. Whereas Jim doesn't have that. So it's, anyway, I thought that was a cool little weird way Michael was able to be good, Michael. But I think in totality, our largest compiling of good Michael is in the Goodbye Michael episode where he's saying goodbye to everyone because he's, He's giving a good gift to everyone on the way out, even though he, the one he gives with Oscar is not so nice. He's just <laughs> laughing at him. At the beginning, I should just keep salami in my pocket just to get Dwight feeling helpful and making him feel good. No, you should not put salami in your pocket if you see a pear. <laughs> right? So, but like, what's yes. cool there is he's accessing the part of Dwight where Dwight wants to be helpful to Michael because Michael knows Dwight likes helping Michael. Yes. So yes. he plays dumb to get Dwight feeling good about being an advice giver or a like a coach basically and how to not get eaten by a bear in his expertise no kind bears, of meat yeah. in your pocket michael <laughs> but see this is weird from what we talked about earlier because this I is know, michael this is being in control of his thoughts self-awareness on michael's part uh, so this is odd. why he's so confusing <laughs> uh I li so like that he tells phyllis that she's cute let's just get ice cream everyone likes what kind of topping do you like pam and this totally confuses her she's like what like you want to know what i want about something um, you sold us on Andy, a product nobody wanted. It's kind of nice. 
gives Dwight his total recommendation, which is exactly what Dwight wanted. The best gift is what they want, even at a subconscious level. In reference to our Stand By Me episode, Chris gives Gordy the gift of saying Gordy loves his stories, which is what Gordy loves the most. Dwight cares the most about his job performance, and essentially. Works, and to be fair to Dwight, he works very hard at it. Of job course, yeah. And so I think that that's what Michael is paying attention to here. And well, this goes back to what you were saying earlier about how Michael pays attention to the little details mm-hmm. about everyone in the office. <laughs> Amazingly, because uh, yeah. he doesn't pay attention to details about anything else. No, but he knows, <laughs> like, this is why, I completely agree, this is why we like Michael. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, he pay, this is why people watch it and feel warmth, is because at the end of the day, people want to be known. Yeah. And he knows his employees. Yeah. And is a great line maybe to leave part one on is I touch people's hearts and minds with love and a little razzle dazzle. <laughs> the heart of the and so he's like he's a performer too. Yeah, I think he has the heart of a performer. Some of his ridiculousness, I mean maybe this is a good summary of Michael is that while we can't seem to understand whether he understands irony or he understands or he has much self awareness there's definitely an indication that some of every of the things he does that are kind of ridiculous are performance. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they're performance is because he does understand on some in- inherent level that he has to make life fun in the office yeah. in order for people to want to be there. And then and he understands there's kind of a unifying rolling of the eyes when it comes to him and he kind of plays it up a little bit. Yeah, and I mean we'll probably talk about this more next time, but how Michael is actually what bonds people in the office to each other. <laughs> exactly. Which, yeah. Which, well, we'll get who knows <laughs> how much of an intention he had there as opposed to just a happy accident, but that's okay. So, yeah, this is actually going to be uh, part one. Part one. Of the, the office. Of the office. Listen in next time for everybody else <laughs> worth talking about in the office, which is everybody else. <laughs> Thanks, so, guys. So, anyway, another episode of Really True Fiction. I'm Luke Mason. And I'm David Parker. See you next time. <laughs>